Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series on new treatments, and today we'll be discussing new treatments available for people who have diabetes. We welcome Dr. John Buse, the Vern S. Cavanis Distinguished Professor of Medicine and Chief of our Division of Endocrinology. He directs the UNC Diabetes Center and the North Carolina Translational and Clinical Sciences Institute, NC Tracks. Welcome, John Buse. Thank you very much. So let's start by discussing a series of new medicines for type 2 diabetes, and specifically, they're called SGLT2 inhibitors, which you'll have to tell us what that means here in a moment. Patients may recognize the names Jardiance, uh, Invocana, Farsiga. Tell us what SGLT really stands for and then what's exciting about these drugs. Yeah, so SGLT2 stands for sodium glucose co-transporter 2, and these drugs are inhibitors, so they block that molecule. And you're going to love this. This involves the kidney. Um, basically, the way the kidney works uh, is that the juice in the blood space is squeezed into the urine space through this glomerulus, and then all the good stuff is reabsorbed back into the blood space. And one of the good stuff that's reabsorbed is glucose. This inhibitor blocks the reabsorption of glucose, so you pee sugar. And by peeing sugar, you reduce the blood sugar in the setting of diabetes. You lose calories, and so it actually promotes weight loss. And you also lose a little bit of salt with that sugar. Um, and as a result of that, it also reduces blood pressure. But what's really exciting is that over the last uh, three years, and most recently just in October, we have additional data that these drugs, when taken by patients with clinical cardiovascular disease, so people who've had heart attacks or strokes or have had bypass surgery um, or have angina uh, kind of symptoms, people with clinical cardiovascular disease who take these drugs, it reduces their risk of uh, heart attack, stroke, and cardiovascular death. And for patients with chronic kidney disease, it reduces the progression of kidney disease over time. So this is one of the first classes of drugs in diabetes to really show that it changes basically, you know, how things turn out for people with diabetes more so than just changing blood sugar. So it's an exciting development, and it's exciting that there are three versions of drugs that inhibit the same receptor. Right. And we're just beginning to understand the kidney disease part. There are additional big trials that are going to be released in the next uh, few months that uh, promise even more impressive outcomes with regards to kidney disease. In terms of preventing the progression of chronic kidney disease to end-stage or dialysis-dependent kidney disease. What are the differences between those three new drugs? You know, as far as their blood sugar effects, not much. There is a concern with Invokana um, that perhaps it increases the risk of amputations, primarily losing toes. Um, but this needs to be taken in the context of saving lives, preventing heart attacks and strokes. And in general, if there really is a problem with increased risk of amputations, it's a much smaller problem than the benefit of the heart, you know, reducing the risk of heart attacks and strokes. Is that, that only true for Invokana or is it also true for Jardians and Farsiga? To date, we have not seen the signal with the other two, but there is a little bit of a debate 
about whether the studies have been done exactly the same way. But to date, um, Invokana has the problem with amputations, and they also seem to have a problem with uh, a bit of an excess in bone fractures. Again, we don't see that with the other two, and how important that difference is is really um, under debate. In other words, it's a, it's a statistical difference. It's not clear whether it's going to become clinically uh, applicable to an individual who's already on that drug and doing well. Right, exactly. And the, you know, the risk of amputations is mostly in people who've already had an amputation or they have severe neuropathy or nerve damage uh, with their feet or very advanced peripheral vascular disease. So people that are already concerned about their feet um, might stay away from Invokana, but the other two, Jardians and Farsiga, seem to be fair game. And other side effects from these uh, new drugs? Remarkably very little. Um, so the major issue is yeast infections, vaginal yeast infections in women. Um, it's about 1 in 10 women will have a vaginal yeast infection on these drugs generally in the first couple of months, and about 1 in 10 of those would have a second episode. They're not very happy, and 1 in 10 of those would have a third episode, but that's you know, now we're talking about one in a thousand people really would have recurrent uh, episodes. So in the grand scheme of things, not a lot of trouble. Some people, because they do have to pee more as a result of uh, losing the sugar through the urine, are bothered by having to get up at night more than they did before. And, you know, so if you're getting up twice a night, you might find getting up three times a night to be really annoying. Um, but in general, most people tolerate it very well. How much weight on average do people lose once they start taking these drugs? It, it varies, uh, but in general, I tell people three to five pounds on average. Some people lose 20 or 30 pounds. Really? Um, and the amount of um, sugar that you lose in the urine is in part dependent on how high your blood sugar is, but also on how good your kidney function is. So. Uh, younger, healthier patients in general may lose a bit more weight uh, than older people with more advanced kidney disease. And how low does the blood pressure drop? And is, there, is it a significant drop in blood pressure? In most people, it's pretty modest, you know, three to five millimeters of mercury. So it's an osmotic diuresis is what's occurring here. Exactly. Uh, there is another class of drugs used in people with type 2 diabetes also. These are called GLP-1 receptor agonists. You have to tell us about that. And patients will be familiar with a name such as Victorza or Ozempic. It's There's Ozempic. also one called Bidurian and Trulicity. There's a bunch of these. What are GLP-1 receptor agonists and how do they help and do they also reduce cardiovascular risk, heart disease risk, and help in pre uh, preventing the progression of kidney disease. Yeah, absolutely. So GLP-1 stands for glucagon-like peptide 1. Um, it's a hormone like insulin, but different. It's made from the intestine in response to meals. And what it does is it stimulates the body's own production of insulin. So in diabetes, there are two problems. Insulin doesn't work very well and we don't make enough of it. Well, this helps you make enough of it. It also has some effects on uh, the brain to promote what we call satiety. So it makes you feel more full when you eat a meal. And as a result of that, you also get weight loss. How much weight loss do you have with this class of drugs? A little bit more, more like five 
plus pounds. Some people will lose 50 pounds. And actually, a high dose of Victoza is marketed under the trade name Saxenda is probably the most effective weight loss drug that we have in America now. That's more like 10 to 15 pounds uh, of weight loss on average. But in any case, uh, these drugs lower blood sugar. Arguably, they're as powerful as insulin in the glucose-lowering department, but they don't cause hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. It promotes weight loss, and it also has a small effect on blood pressure. And once again, uh, these drugs have been shown to reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, cardiovascular disease, and reduce the rate of progression of kidney disease. Now, that said, the GLP-1 receptor agonists seem to be particularly good at modifying sort of the process of atherosclerosis, the process by which we develop heart attacks and uh, strokes, blockages in arteries. Whereas the other drugs we were talking about, the SGLT2 inhibitors, they seem to be particularly good for heart failure um, and for kidney disease. They're both good for both, uh, but in general, uh, the GLP-1 receptor agonists are are better for atherosclerosis and the SGLT2 inhibitors better for heart failure and kidney disease. When you see a person with diabetes for the first time, are you going to start these drugs or one or the other before other kinds of therapy? Well, right now, we don't have any evidence that for people who don't have any problems with their heart or their kidneys or blockages in their arteries, for people who are clean in that regard, we don't have any evidence that there's extra benefit from these drugs. Now, that said, these are the only two drugs for diabetes that really provide substantial weight loss. They're great blood sugar-lowering drugs, and they lower blood pressure, so they have a lot to recommend them. But they you know, if you haven't had problems with your heart and you don't have problems with your kidney, there's probably not an extra special benefit of these drugs. But if there is an extra special benefit, using your word choice, uh, you have some degree of kidney disease, you know you have had problems with your heart, are these now first-line drugs? We generally say not first-line. The first-line drug is still metformin, um, just because it's so cheap, so effective, and it has its cardiovascular benefits of its own. Um, but certainly, the, there's a, what we call a compelling indication, meaning that there's very good reason to use these GLP-1 receptor agonists or SGLT2 inhibitors if you have chronic kidney disease or heart disease. And where's then the use of insulin in this, uh, in this thinking process? Well, that's a great question. So um, you know, we recently, on October 5th, published new guidelines from the American Diabetes Association um, and the European Association for the Study of Diabetes. And uh, you know, we talked about SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists being used specifically in people with heart disease and kidney disease as a compelling indication. But we also downgraded the use of insulin Um, and said that if you need the additional power, you know, the additional effectiveness of a blood sugar-lowering drug um, that you get from these injected agents, so that's the GLP-1 receptor agonists and uh, and insulin, that you really should use the GLP-1 receptor agonists. They're equally effective, maybe even more effective than insulin and blood sugar-lowering, they provide weight loss instead of weight gain, and they don't increase the risk of hypoglycemia or low blood sugar reactions like insulin does. The downside to the GLP-1 receptor agonists, though, is that they're more expensive. Um, so they're more, you know, the, the 
retail price, um, and nobody pays retail anymore, but the retail price is on the order of uh, $20 to $30 a day, um, as opposed to insulin, which is more on the order of 3 to $5 a day. But again, you don't have those episodes of hypoglycemia where sugar falls. Now, the SGLP2 inhibitors, those are oral drugs. The SGLT2 inhibitors are pills, yes. And the GLP-1 drugs are injectables. Today, they're injectables. We're doing trials now uh, with the same chemical protein, semaglutide, that's in Ozempic, arguably the most powerful of the GLP-1 receptor agonists now, in an oral formulation. So it's a, it's a capsule uh, that you take first thing in the morning uh, with a small swallow of water, and um, the capsule settles in the stomach, and it has some material that allows these proteins to get into the bloodstream through the stomach. And at least so far, it's not yet FDA approved, but it's uh, um, the clinical trial program is largely complete. Uh, it seems to be just as effective as the injected Ozempic. So we'll soon have a pill form of GLP-1. Today it's injected. All injected. And I would just... To make things a little bit easier, the Ozempic and uh, Trulicity and Bidurian are a once-a-week injection, um, so it's not the everyday injection um, with other agents from the class or like with insulin where we're often taking multiple injections in a day. You referenced an international meeting that rethought the recommendations for diabetes not just in the United States, but also uh, in Europe. What was left out of those recommendations? What type of condition was not fully considered? Yeah. So the the meetings were actually held over a period of a year. Um, and it was, uh, you know, such a um, sort of controversial area to change the guidance in diabetes from one where we're really just targeting levels of blood sugar to one of preventing complications um, and getting away from insulin um, that we weren't able to do everything. And so the areas that we specifically left out is what about kids with diabetes? And you, you may know now that in children, um, maybe a third to half of the diabetes now is not type 1 diabetes, but the same type 2 diabetes that 50-year-old overweight men get. And we um, left out pregnancy. How should we treat diabetes in pregnancy? So the, in general, what I've, we've talked about today is not approved uh, in pregnancy or in children. may not be a bad idea in children, but we need to do the studies. Um, and then the big thing that was left out is the whole pre-diabetes issue. So there are 30 million people in the United States with diabetes. That's about one in 10 adults. There's another 80 million people with pre-diabetes, which means blood sugars higher than normal, but not high enough to say that you have diabetes. And those people have about a one in three chance of developing diabetes over the next five to 10 years. We haven't endorsed using these newer agents to prevent the progression of diabetes. Um, they probably would work really, really well. But still, the news there is that everybody in America that's overweight should be screened for prediabetes. And if they have prediabetes, they really need to work to lose 5 to 10 to 15 pounds to try and prevent the progression of diabetes. And that weight loss can reduce the risk of developing diabetes by 50%.
which brings it into focus. What about diet? Used to be the emphasis was almost exclusively for in pre-diabetics as well as diabetic patients to, to try to lose weight. What yeah. recommendations do you now make about dietary control? Yeah, so now you're getting into sort of the deep, dark secrets of medical care. So we've always said that diet is the most important thing in diabetes. But we've kind of known that we talk to our patients about you need to lose 5 or 10 pounds, you need to cut back on your uh, carbohydrates. Some people will boil it down to don't eat any white foods. You know, there's all kinds of quick and dirty messages that physicians have been providing to patients around diet management. And the impression has been that it doesn't really work. And the reason it doesn't really work is because we haven't been doing it very well. Um, so one of the most exciting things that's come out over the last couple of years um, are the studies that show that for people that want to lose weight, um, using techniques like these powdered meal replacements can result in big weight loss on the order of 20 pounds. Um, and something like 60% of patients actually having their diabetes go away, you know, going from diabetes that's not very well controlled on medication to having no diabetes. Um, so diet... With, with weight, weight loss. With weight loss. And, you know, this is not, you know, this is not, um, Bubba, you're too fat, eat less and exercise more. This is a serious engagement with healthcare professionals that are focused on uh, weight management. Um, but the impact is huge for the people who really want to do it. So... I think the good news is um, that we now know that weight loss does work. It's just a matter of really putting your heart and soul into it, both the patient and the provider. It's not something that we can sort of short shrift, or no one would have a problem with being overweight. I mean, you know, everybody, almost everybody who's heavy would like to lose weight, and it's not easy to do. You pointed out earlier that one of the GLP-1 uh, inhibitors has in a different, with a different name, uh, is being uh, marketed as a weight loss uh, medication. Is it a weight loss medication that works? And is it a weight loss medication that doesn't lower the blood sugar? Yes. Um, so the, that's one of the great things about the SGLT2 inhibitors and the GLP-1 receptor agonists. Neither one of them will make your blood sugar too low. Even in a person who has no problems with their blood, blood sugar to start with. Right. You could take someone with a completely normal blood sugar, even someone whose blood sugar is a little bit low. You might have heard of this reactive hypoglycemia that some people that are you know, overweight will get these low blood sugar spells after they eat cereal for breakfast. Um, you know, even in those people, if anything, this lowers the risk of hypoglycemia. Um, and these drugs are you know, are moderately effective for weight loss. You know, these very intensive lifestyle programs involving, you know, powdered meal replacement, very frequent follow-up with, uh, with healthcare providers who specialize in obesity management are, are frankly more effective on average than the drugs. So we usually do a tiered thing where we try our very best with whatever lifestyle program we can come up with. And then depending on how people respond, uh, consider these drugs. And if that doesn't work, we can't forget about the power of bariatric surgery. You know, we, in a way, hate to advocate for surgically correcting problems that at least theoretically are underpinned by behavioral issues. Um, 
but I think all's fair in love and war. And um, for people that are very heavy or who have medical consequences of being heavy, uh, bariatric surgery is likewise extremely effective. Um, so there you see weight loss on the order of 50% of the excess weight, um, and you see reversals of diabetes in more than 70%, even in some patients who are already on insulin. If these two classes of drugs don't lower blood sugar, what's the role now of glucose monitoring? Yeah, so that's another great question. So the blood sugar monitoring, um, uh, we studied here at UNC in a very important trial called Monitor that's been very controversial because we show that in patients that weren't on insulin, if they're not on insulin, where we're doing glucose monitoring really for safety to catch low blood sugars before people get into trouble, but if patients aren't on insulin, it's unclear that there's benefit for glucose monitoring in general. For patients on insulin, um, there's some very nice new advances. So we have these flash glucose monitors, which is basically like having a, 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 a thumbtack with a head on it about the size of a quarter uh, that goes into your um, into the skin at, on your upper arm. And um, actually does not hurt. Barely doesn't hurt. I mean, it's a little bit like getting your blood drawn, you know, sort of initial prick, but then you're fine. It stays in place for two weeks, and basically you just move this wand next to it anytime you want to know, uh, know your blood sugar. So you don't have to prick your finger. You don't have to do all that stuff anymore. That's a big deal in type 1 diabetes. So that's a different disease in type 2 diabetes, what we've been talking about before. Uh, but in type 1 diabetes, these, these advances really help a lot uh, with avoiding low blood sugars and improving control. We haven't talked about uh, insulin pumps. And where now do those fit in your armamentarium of, of therapies? So an insulin pump uh, fundamentally is like a very, very fancy insulin syringe. In the setting of type 1 diabetes, where the problem is the body just has quit making insulin for the most part, um, it allows the patient to very precisely administer insulin to match their activity level and their food intake and their stress. Um, and um, it allows for, you know, very precise control over blood sugar. And now we have these continuous glucose monitors um, that can be linked to the insulin pump in a closed loop fashion. So basically the patient just has to provide some advice to the pump and the pump takes care of a lot of the details. This is evolving very rapidly. I suspect in the next five years, the life of patients with diabetes treated with insulin will be dramatically enhanced by these kind of technologies. The technology that we have today is so much better than two years ago. It still needs perfecting, but uh, management of insulin in the setting of diabetes is getting much better, much faster. You've mentioned type 1 and type 2 diabetes. For reference, what are the differences? Yeah. Um, so type 1 diabetes, the process that you develop diabetes is the cells in the body that make insulin have been destroyed by a selective autoimmune attack, a little bit like rheumatoid arthritis destroys the joints. In type 1 diabetes, um, you destroy your beta cells that make insulin. So the only problem is insulin. 
you have to precisely administer insulin to match activity and diet. There's no insulin or very, or very, very, very little. little. Right. Um, and um, that is the disease that's more, more common among children. It still is 5% of new onset diabetes in adults. Um, so one in 20 adults who's diagnosed with diabetes at age 75 actually has type 1 diabetes. Um, um, but there the game is really precisely administering insulin. Type 2 diabetes is the more common form of the disease, about 95% of the population. And uh, there is a relative deficiency of insulin, meaning there's less insulin than you need. Uh, but sometimes there's more insulin than you were born with. And the real problem is that is insulin resistance. So the insulin doesn't work very well. Um, so my, my dad was actually an endocrinologist, and he used to describe type 2 diabetes as when you have a Cadillac frame and a Ford pancreas. Um, and so you just can't get, you know, you just can't get the car going like it should because uh, the pancreas is too small. But in any case, so we have lots of drugs uh, for type 2 diabetes, and the name of the game is mixing and matching it um, and the lifestyle interventions that we talked about before. Are there new treatments for type 1? Well, the FDA is reviewing a class of drugs, the SGLT2 inhibitors that we talked about before that make you pee sugar for use in type 1 diabetes. Um, we have done a bunch of trials with this. Um, it's extremely effective. Patients with type 1 diabetes seem to love it. The problem is about uh, 1 in 25 patients, um, so not everybody, but 1 in 25 patients will develop diabetic ketoacidosis, mm -hmm. which is a life-threatening complication. And the thing that makes it even more complicated is because the SGLT2 inhibitors lower blood sugar, you can have diabetic ketoacidosis with a normal level of blood sugar. And so patients feel sick, but neither the patient nor the doctor actually figures out what's wrong with them because it never occurs to them that they could have diabetic ketoacidosis when their blood sugar is normal. Um, so we're working very hard to figure out you know, how to minimize that risk and how to create educational programs that will make sure that patients and doctors never miss uh, that DKA complication. Um, I think we'll work it out, um, but, you know, certainly not here today to really advocate that everybody with type 1 diabetes should be on these drugs right now. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the big message I would have for uh, primary care doctors uh, would be if you have a patient that you have difficult time getting their diabetes controlled now, there are so many new tools. Certainly do feel free to call on your local diabetes specialist to help you out with those cases. The main message I would have for patients with diabetes is that this is not your grandfather's Oldsmobile. You know, it's a new era. Back in the day, you know, frankly, I was drawn to diabetes because it was so difficult to manage. You know, you, you had to be sort of a faith healer and really motivate people to do things that they didn't think they otherwise could do. You know, we the tools are so good now that no one has any business having long-term complications of diabetes. We really should be able to control diabetes in virtually everyone. You know, sometimes the treatments are pretty expensive, and so with our healthcare system, there, you know, there are issues uh, in America with getting the right kind of care to the right kind of people at the right time. Uh, 
but in general, everybody with diabetes should do well, you know, live out a full lifespan without any disabling complications. Wonderful message. Right. And for patients, especially if you know you have kidney disease, if you know you have heart disease, uh, these two classes of drugs are useful drugs to remember so that you can help your doc pick those drugs. So, Ron, you know, you're a kidney specialist. What, you know, we've had this conversation now. I don't think you really knew I'm everything. I'm completely brainwashed right. now. But no, no, no. <laughs> but, you know, I don't think this is something that you've yeah. thought a lot about uh, no, that's before right. today. So what, what did you hear is the real take-home message? That patients who have kidney disease from diabetes should ask their nephrologist and ask their diabetes doctor whether this group of drugs, especially the SGLT2 inhibitors, are very useful. And if the trials uh, come out uh, definitively that this group of drugs uh, really does decrease the progression of disease, they're going to be uh, first-line agents. Yeah. It, you know, I spend most of my time doing clinical trials. So we've done several hundred cr clinical research projects over the last 25 years here at UNC. Um, and I have to say the one disappointment I have in my professional career is not related to the lack of discoveries and the lack of advances. It's the lack of implementation of the things that we know work. So as an example, the message that we just talked about, reducing the risk of heart attacks, we've known that in some way, form, or fashion for the last three or four years. And still only about 10 or 15% of people who have heart disease are taking either one of these, uh, these drugs. You know, we, we need to do things like this to make sure that uh, providers get this message, but also that patients, patients are empowered to go to their doctor and say, hey, I was listening to this podcast. I heard I should be taking these SGLT2 inhibitors. You know, what do you know about that? Um, and if you don't know about it, please, uh, please ask. And it wouldn't take a doctor. I mean, I remember a patient who called me out on something once, um, and I have really avoided being called out on that issue ever since. So it doesn't take very many reminders from patients to change doctor behavior. Uh, thank you, Dr. Buse, for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. Next time, we'll welcome Dr. Mike Cohn, who will be discussing particular HIV medications. You can subscribe to the Chairs Corner on iTunes, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening.